What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I know it's been a minute. Uh, I've been MIA. I've been really busy with life things. You know, I'm sure you all are busy with life things, but I'm back and this is a sick, sick episode for you. I have Brit, original Indiana jeans on the podcast. Brit is a super triple OG in the vintage clothing game. When we say, uh, you know, found in the wild, we don't even know what that means, <laughs> but Britt does. Britt literally goes into the wild, into gold mines, silver copper mines, abandoned ghost towns, old barns and ranches, and that's where he finds his stuff. He comes up on crazy, crazy antique and rare clothing. Uh, super nice guy, and we have a great, great chat. So, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy this episode. couple quick housekeeping things, as always. If you want to go shop FSNFrankVintage.com, use code VTGNSTUFF for 25% off. As always, go, guys, sign up on BidSitch if you want to sell your clothing with zero, zero commission fees. If you want to sell vintage with zero commission fees, I know eBay's been eating up all your money. Depop's been eating up all your money. Etsy's been eating up all your money and kicking people off lately, actually, for who knows what reasons. Bidstitch does not do that. Zero fees on Bidstitch. Bidstitch.com. Go sign up. Check out FrankieCollective.com. But enough of that. Happy holidays, everyone. Sick episode with Brit, original Indiana jeans. Thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, appreciate you doing this. It took a while for us to finally link here. I know we've been back and forth quite a bit. You're a busy guy. You just got back from Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was down there about 17 days. I had to recover from getting fired from ice hockey coaching, which is basically my winter life and my identity is all wrapped up in ice hockey coaching. And we actually got a new Canadian, a very famous Canadian as the new hockey director. And I think I was a little bit too independent of a thinker for his, his, uh, his protocol. And uh, so so I got one more reason to say, fuck Canada. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that sucks, man. Do you you coach your kids or do you coach like an adult team or what? I coach kids and I've been coaching, you know, 11 or 12 years. I was actually the longest tenured coach in our, in our community here. And it's a small community, but we have a pretty strong hockey program. And I'm proud to say that a lot of the kids that I've coached have matriculated on to college and AAA and different stuff. I play all the time. In fact, I'm, fi- I'm about to be 52, and I am equally banged up from my career and from hockey and from mountain biking. I crashed mountain biking a couple of days ago, really bad, gnarly, freaking terrible situation in Albuquerque. And we were down there for hockey, and I went mountain biking and 
was slick on the road anyway. But, but, but basically I have trouble sleeping now. It's like all of a sudden in the last year, I can't sleep because of all my injuries coming to nag at me. I got an elbow that can't straighten my shoulders a disaster. I mean, you know, how old are you anyway? I'm 41. Yeah. Yeah. You're a puppy. But that's, uh, that, that's all those scars are the, the, the telltales of your rich full life that you've lived, man. You know? Yeah, no, I don't have any complaints or any regrets, really. I mean, you know, I've, 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 uh, I've sucked the marrow out of the bone, as they might say, you know? Yeah, so, <laughs> fuck, I'm sorry to hear about the coaching. Did Costa Rica do it for you? Did it help you uh, get it totally. through your system? Absolutely. The day I got fired, I'm like, all right, I can't handle this in America. And I had COVID, too, by the way, at the same time. So wow. I get fired, and then literally the day after I get fired, I, got, I get tested positive for COVID. So I couldn't have coached anyway for the first couple of weekends. So that was just a weird coincidence. And I got COVID because I went to the dead shows, which precipitated the firing because they didn't think I was being serious enough because I went on tour with the dead for the month of October. <laughs> That's so crazy. So how was that? You're, you're oh, on the road man, with the it was dead, amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. They, uh, the John Mayer intonation of, the, of this band is so good. And people hate on them, but. I, I was thinking I wasn't going to like it. The first three years, I after Jerry Garcia died, I was done. I was like, all right, Garcia's yeah. gone. I'm done. And then all these other people they brought in, I just didn't really get the music. I didn't feel like it was that for me anyway. It didn't, it didn't you know, hit me. And I went to see John Mayer with the dead just because everybody said he was so good with them. Freaking awesome. I mean, he really, he really gets it. So that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, and, well, and I think that everybody that goes loves it. The only people that hate on it or don't go. You know? Yeah, and why not at least be able to appreciate it and at least be able to get out there and enjoy some fucking live music after all this bullshit we've been through with yeah. people, even though you did get COVID. Fuck, that's crazy, but... Well, I don't know I got it from that. I mean, I got stuck in Phoenix. You know how airlines are these days. It's just yeah. a nightmare. In fact, I have a Canadian friend that I do some mine exploring with, or I haven't actually explored with him, but we're friends. But we were, we've been trying to set up a trip for like two years to go mine exploring. And uh, do you know this guy? Uh, his name is Frank, actually, but he's not F as in Frank. He's just yeah, Frank. No. Frank. He's the guy that found all those jeans in Castle Dome, and they claimed it was half a million dollars. You got to have heard of this story. No, I've never they found, heard of this like, story. Is Castle oh, man, Dome in Canada? Canada? He's a Canadian guy that was exploring in this mine in southern Arizona called Castle Dome, and he found ten pairs of eighteen nineties jeans. And the owner of the place had a little knowledge of Levi's and the value. And he started telling that these jeans were worth half a million dollars to kind of, it's, it's, it's just like everything, man. And this is a bigger discussion about this business. I had the same discussion with somebody yesterday. Oh, a friend of mine in Montana, same discussion where um, a he helped this lady with her estate and he knew her husband. And uh, the only thing he said, he says, I want this one item that he had. I want, he said he'd give it to me before he died. He didn't. He goes, I will pay market value. Get it appraised. I'll buy it. She said, of course, no problem. He spent weeks cataloging her stuff, helping her ship it off to Sotheby's and the different places. And then he goes to pick up the item and they have an appraisal. She got me appraised. She said, oh, I shipped it out to the auction house. He goes, what are you talking about? You told me you'd hold that for me. And the bottom line is, I said, man, everybody lies. He said, they do. He goes, everybody lies. He goes, and then he called her some names and stuff. And it's just, 
And then he's like, and then he's like this. And then he's like, but he goes, the granddaughter's a meth head. He goes, the next time you're up there, I'll take you to the place and she'll sell you anything when the daughter's not around. <laughs> I'm like, all right, that sounds pretty good. But and yeah, it's a guy, a, I knew the guy classic, too. I knew, I knew the guy. Scenario. I knew the guy in the 90s. This guy was unbelievable. He sold a massive, if I say too much, people are going to figure out who he is. But I will say this. At one point, when they did Disneyland in France or whatever, I think it was in France, he sold them, like, they did a mining exhibit at Disneyland, and he sold them, like, a million dollars of mining machinery and equipment and stuff he had. He had a lot of stuff. And he took me to some ghost towns, this guy did, um, 20 years ago, and I found a bunch of those, uh, you know, I found I found a bunch of those Tower brand uh, slickers and stuff up there in one of his mining towns he had. He owned them, too. Crazy. Uh, so yeah, I want to fucking talk about this. Cause this is like, this is what intrigues me about you. Your uh, Instagram is the original Indiana jeans, which, uh, describes you well. Indiana Jones is like one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's kind of why so many of us fucking do this is for the thrill of the hunt, but you're doing the hunt in like the most wild, organic kind of crazy way is like going to the source, going into mining towns, going into ghost towns, going into fucking barns, actually going to the places like the origins of where these clothes were used and now are sitting hopefully still, right? And it's funny, actually, me and Jesse still... So I met you, I don't know if you remember this, but my first trip to Rose Bowl ever was like not 2005, 2006. We came down and we were chatting to you and this is when Larry had an auction at like some hotel in Pasadena. I remember that auction, yeah, the triple flying H or flying H, uh, flying deuce, flying yeah. deuce. Totally. And we met that trip and you, I think you had bought a couple things from us like on eBay before that, but that was the first time we met. And this was maybe my second or third time down to California before we ever even sold at the bowl. And so to this day, when we find something that's like super old, super fucking thrashed, we still call it a Brit piece. Like me and Jesse, <laughs> we're like, Oh, we found a Brit piece. <laughs> you're known in the industry for being able to sell like, well, first of all, you have rare, crazy antique clothing, but also like super thrashed clothing, like some things hanging on by a thread, um, which I think I is fucking that, rad. by the way. Hey, you know, I got a funny story about that. Well, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you said. And yes, I remember buying some cool stuff from you guys. You guys were friendly and reasonable. You know, there's other guys, I'm not going to say who, that you go out there and it's the same shit every time at the Rose Bowl. Totally. It's like, yeah. it's like they're getting exercise. They're not interested in making money. They're just interested in getting exercise. I remember Larry saying to a guy to Mike Manpearl, Yeah, he walked up to Manpearl and he's like, so Mike, um, are you selling anything or just showing off? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's it how so it is. And, and there how, about was... those guys, how about those guys that had the Levi banners and the, the, the big jeans, the big Levi uh, banner and the jeans forever for 15 years, they had the same items trying to sell them. They weren't displaying them. You know what yeah. I'm talking about at the Rose Bowl? They probably I remember actually... those guys. I remember this one booth that has like always have, would have like the same Jordan one jacket and like a small couple small pairs of Biggie Levi's. And you're like, dude, yeah. these have been out here for so fucking long. But now right. there's a new generation of, of like kids that are out there with the same t-shirts that have been there for like six months, a year on yep. the booth. And you're like, come on, guys. Like, are you are you a dealer or are you just here to flex? Yeah. Um, oh man, uh, God, I had something really funny to say right there. It's a little anecdote and I've totally lost it. When you said, when you said I had this thing, <clears throat> because there's so much, like I said, so much, but there was one thing that you said that was a funny story that made me think of something. 
at Rose Bowl. I don't freaking know, man. Anyway, let's let's remember. let's throw it back. I want to go deep into like your picking experiences and like your your history in the mines and all that shit because that's super interesting. But I want to know, like, I read somewhere that you started in this business originally from selling motorcycles or exporting uh, Harleys or something, and then it got you into the clothing business. Is that true? Yeah, I, I didn't, I came around it. I mean, everybody, it's always fun to hear people's origin stories for when they're serious about this, when they really, you know, and, and when, when I talk about serious, by the way, I'm talking about, <clears throat> I have a piece of real estate that's under contract right now. And if it sells, I'm taking a huge portion of the money and I'm going to Japan to, to invest. So I look at this much more now. I mean, it was just survival for, you know, 15, 20 years. But I did collect stuff along the way that I didn't want to sell. When you I've say invest, sort of a, do you mean buying clothing in Japan? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, like investing? I'm talking about going and buying. I mean, yeah. I, I have a pretty solid collection of 1800 stuff now, maybe the best in the world. I don't know. It's good. But I'm going to go invest massive more. And yeah. because, okay, I'll give you an example. I just shipped a pair of jeans to China yesterday. China. I just shipped yeah. some jeans to China. And and the, I sold them six months ago. It took the guy six months to pay for them. And they're worth $10,000 now, 10000 more now than they were when I sold them to the guy uh, six months ago or eight months ago when he first started paying, making the payments. So it's like, it's dep- and by the way, I lost them because it took the guy so long to pay and I'm a total freaking disaster. It took me a week more than that, probably three weeks after he f- finished the payment for me to find him, like just looking around for him. So I'm like, well, how many people are losing a $20,000 pair of jeans? They can't even find it. You know, that's my life. But anyway, so I finally find him and shipped him. But as I'm putting him in the box yesterday, I'm like, good grief. You know, this is depressing. I'm, I'm sending him off. But of course I'm going to honor the deal. He paid for him and everything. But nevertheless, while they were lost for a while, I thought to myself, huh, that's not the worst thing if I can't ever find him again, because then I'd have to refund the guy's money. And then actually my net worth's up 10 grand because I still have them someplace. Although the whole time they were lost, I did think it was possible I'd accidentally, because I think I had him in a box before the guy. And I think I thought maybe they got put in another box that got shipped to somebody else. Cause I've been selling these big boxes of, of scrap denim and stuff like that. And yeah. since they were in a small box, I thought maybe that small box got put in a big box. And so maybe somebody else either hasn't opened it yet or they opened it and they're being quiet about it. You know what I'm saying? Here. That happened to me recently. We swapped the labels on two boxes and I sent a box of sick shit to Australia by accident. And I was like, fuck, I just lost so much money. But luckily the guy was like super chill and he like sent it back to us. But well, so what's this picture? So wait a minute. Okay, okay. first of all, you say the guy was super chill. It's like, it's like, there's just good, good. There's right and wrong. He wasn't anything special. He was just right. He shouldn't get a fucking round of applause for doing the right thing. And and that is what, you know, at this point of my career or whatever, I'm 50, almost 52 years old. I've been doing this since I was a kid. Um, that's, that is everything now, you know, is doing what's right. And I have to ask myself and sometimes I'll do what's wrong. And then I'll have to go, wait, wait a minute. Or someone will call me out on it. And I have to not have an ego and go, yeah, you're right. Or I'll just, you know, it's just, everything's a gut instinct. Anyway, this is, uh, that's how I started. See me there. Yeah. That was in Florida. And I bought a bale of Levi's. Oh, I know you were asking about, oh yeah. 
people that get into this, that's what we were going to talk about. It's like, um, I'm always intrigued by people who, uh, find their way into this business. You know, um, you know, I remember Eric from junkyard jeans telling me something cause I was selling to him. He, you know, when you first get started before there's eBay and all this freaking Instagram or whatever, it's, you just, you're a buyer and you have someone that buys from you. So you're yeah. a picker and you sell to somebody. And it's very, um, very much a trust and honor and uh, uh, um, a codependency, a symbiotic relationship, right? So when I first started, I had Green for Jeans. Remember them out of uh, out of San Francisco? Uh, Max Shapiro and Gary uh, Wang or whatever his name was. Okay. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that is? Uh, no. Do you know that joke? Gary you ever Wang? see Caddy? You don't remember from Caddyshack where uh, Rodney Dangerfield walks in and he's like, hey, everybody. He goes into the golf shop and he goes, I'll take three of those and four of them and give me seven of those tees and 20 of the Titleists. Hey, everybody. This is my friend, Mr. Wang. No offense. You don't remember that? It's like the best. Anyway, so I think the guy's name was actually Gary Wang. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'm getting off the track here as usual. Yeah, um, but so, so you're, Gary Wang and these, this other guy are like, are one of your customers that you're picking for and you're talking about codependency so yeah like like you're you're relying on them to be honest with you is what you're saying as far as like what the values are building relationships with like your your people really before you could actually what i'm saying what i'm saying is you don't have you don't have you know it wasn't one of my customers you it's your only customer like yeah when i first started i had a guy in florida i was picking for he was my guy like i sold everything i found i sold to him or at least gave him a first chance and I, maybe it was different for your origins. I have no idea. But And then I moved to Colorado, and I was dealing with um, a company called Farley Enterprises. And Farley Enterprises, dude, they were like eBay before eBay. They had an auction to Japan, but they also would give you – I wish I had a picture of this. They would send out a magazine of what they were buying, and it had like UPS shipping labels, and you would just send them stuff, and then they'd send you a check. So you they give take you a the, the label out of the magazine and just send this shit. Yes. Yes. What the fuck? And, they, and yeah. And they give you a check. I, I have some of those old magazines. I actually sold a couple on my Instagram uh, recently, like over the summer. But, uh, but the coolest thing was they give you like a buy sheet and it'd be like, it'd be like a list like this. And it would say, you know, Levi 501 uh, size 28 to 32, $22. Um, Nike t-shirts, $15. And I would take this sheet and I would go to the thrift stores back in 1997 and 98. And I would just be like, oh, and I'd look on the rack and it was like a shopping list. And I knew that every time I saw a Pendleton shirt that was $1.50, oh, I could sell that for $12. And so it was a massive profit situation. And that's yeah. how I got started. So you move forward with these different people. And I was going to uh, eventually got uh, Farley could have been eBay. Like Pierre Omidar, the guy that's worth fifty billion that started eBay, it was basically Farley was doing it. Farley was only doing it though to Japan. If they'd opened it up, what they were doing all over the place, they would have been eBay. And you never even sound like you never even heard of them. And most people listening no, to this haven't probably heard before them. my time. So you're this just for context for everybody. You're talking like mid nineties, late nineties. What well, are you talking? About? I started in ninety seven, and Farley okay. was my. Farley was the big deal for me. The guy that I was selling to in Florida, he basically said he, we became good friends. And he said, and actually Johnny Depp was like his main client. And I worked at his store for a while too. 
and he had the original Gilbert great Carhartt jacket up on the wall and Depp signed it and everything. But the, re- the reason I got into this whole freaking line here, and I'll try to reel myself in. This in is second. what we want, dude. It's good. Yeah, I'll try to reel <laughs> myself in. The reason we got into this is because I eventually got to Eric from Junkyard Gene. So I know you know Eric. Yeah, of course. And Eric was big in that Flying Deuce auction world, by the way. He was like one of the big consignees or whatever to that auction. But I remember him telling me, because he knew I was flat freaking broke. I mean, I was broke. When I moved to Colorado, I didn't have shit. I had a I was towing a trailer with a whole bunch of vintage clothing. I got at some rag houses in Florida. My truck, my car broke down like 15 times. Had to get a new engine on the way. Had to throw out half the vintage clothing. Like literally what would be now probably 20 grand of stuff. I had to throw it in a dumpster because the engine was overheating, towing the trailer with all the stuff. So I threw it in a dumpster on my way out of Florida, like in Jacksonville, up in the swamps of Florida. (laughs) And the the trailer was going like this, like fishtailing behind the Jeep Cherokee. And the guy at the gas station is like, what I do is I'd cut off my mirrors. <laughs> like, that's what he told me to do. So I wouldn't look at the mirror to yeah. see the thing. So I wouldn't even, you know, I would like not even pay attention to the fact it was fit going. So I threw out like a thousand dollars stuff. But when I found Eric, I remember him saying to me, he goes, well, you and I are different because he goes, I came into this business with money and you didn't. And so he was in some other business and he was a little older when he got into the vintage thing. So he had a lot of money to invest. He did have a pot to piss in and I didn't have a pot to piss in. And that really, I think that's probably gets you to why was I a scrounger? You know, I couldn't afford to go to the Rose Bowl and buy something for 300 and try to get 500 for it. Right. I had to go scrounge around at ghost towns and stuff. You know, so so you were doing that from the beginning. Like once you got to Colorado, that's when it started, and right away you're just being resourceful and figuring out where to find this shit, like anywhere and everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Between like '97 and 2002, I I could have told you where every rickety ass thrift store in five different states was, what days they were open. I would find the church ones. They were the best, the ones that were only open from like 10 to 12 on Thursdays, you know, and I've got some unbelievable, actually my first amazing score happened in a situation like that, which I'll tell you if you want to hear it. Yeah. Um, But, uh, but I just want to, I just want to show you one more thing. Okay. Yeah. So going back to this picture, (laughs) you see me there in my, look how eighties I look, right? Oh yeah. Even though it's 97, I'm looking eighties, but do you see the clothing with all the American flag shit on it? Yeah, let's pile jeans on the ground. Then you got that. There's a jean hanging off the window there that looks like an advertising Levi's piece or something. Yeah, that's all stuff I made. So that I bought this bale of Levi's, and if I could go back in time, the dude had been like an exporter of of denim, like in the in the seventies and in uh, eighties, and he had like three hundred bales of Levi's in this huge warehouse, but he. He hadn't touched them in like 25, 30 years. And so all the stuff was, it was all like Levi's and it was all pre 85 stuff, but it was, it was like the number three condition stuff. Right. So I bought the bail and it ended up being like 3000 pairs, but every single one of them had holes like crazy. And at this point in the nineties, that holy look wasn't popular. So I was literally, I didn't sleep because I was broke. My car got repoed. I was going to the freaking flea market. Uh, on my rollerblades with a backpack full of jeans. Like this is this is right before my car got repoed. That's my car. That's a Lexus I had in my previous in the company I worked for. But when I went into the Levi thing, 
the car got repoed right away because I went so broke so fast. And uh, anyway, so I'm out there in a backpack and everyone else is, you know, in cars. And I'm the guy that's on rollerblades with a backpack, breathing the exhaust at four o'clock in the morning at the swap shop in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And, uh, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible. And, um, and then hoping to make like, you know, 50 bucks to keep my lights on in my house that I was living in, you know? So would you say Florida uh, was good picking in those days? I think Florida is probably still awesome, man. It's like, if you rattle the whole country, all the freaking, you know, old people move to Florida and they bring with them their old clothes. And, and then they go to the thrift store and they give them to the thrift store. And then the thrift store doesn't know what to do with them. So they give them to these rag houses. And I, my rag house, the origins of how I found the rag house situation, that's another unbelievable. That's like the luckiest thing of my life. I never even knew what a rag house was, but one day I'm, I'm a guy that my whole life, I've always said, one of my things is I like to go, I like to go directions I've never gone before to places I've never been before. Like I'm an explorer, right? Yeah. So one day I'm, I'm freaking tired as shit. Been selling at the flea market and I'm, this is before my car got repossessed. Oh no, no, that's not true. I think I, I finally got another car. I've been like two months without a car. Then I got another car. Anyway, I'm driving around and I'm like, oh, I've never gone down then this road before. And it was on the general way back to my ghetto freaking house that I was living where there was gunshots all night long. And <clears throat> I see this giant warehouse. I'm like, huh. And there's this mound of freaking clothing, just a mound of clothing. And my car just kind of goes right in there. And it's a guy from Haiti that has been buying all the shit for, from all the thrift stores that they don't want. And he's got all these people, all these Haitians sitting around going through this stuff and throwing it into this giant pile. And, uh, and then they're taking the, the, uh, the loose weight clothing, like t-shirts and shorts and stuff. And they're exporting that to Haiti, but all the stuff, that's any kind of like this shirt I'm wearing or sweatpants, sweatshirts. They don't want that stuff in Haiti because Haiti's hot as shit. So he's putting in this big pile. And I'm like, well, I go, well, what's that big pile that keep throwing everything into? He goes, yeah, man, that's the trash, man. And I'm looking at it going, are you kidding me? That's the, that's the trash. Cause I'm seeing all sorts of denim and killer sweatshirts and the whole thing, you know? And he's, and so I made a deal with them right there on the spot. You're going to love this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This pile, I'm not kidding you. This pile was like, this pile was as big as like 300 school buses. Okay. It was Uh just this massive pile. And then once a month, they would clean it out and take it all to the dump. So I said, well, if you're throwing it out anyway, and you're, and you're paying to dump it, why don't you just sell me stuff for like nothing? I said, I'll give you $25 for a, and I had a Jeep Cherokee with, you know, the hatchback or whatever. I said, I'll give you $25 for everything I can fit in the back of my, uh, Jeep every time I come. And he goes, sure deal. So I would go in there and I would literally tunnel through the freaking giant 300 freaking bus deal. And I tunnel through and find stuff. And sometimes you get into like a vein, just like mine. you know, this is before I did mine exploring, but same kind of deal that the actual miners would do, which is you'd, you'd find like a freaking, you know, pair of red lines and you're like, Oh shit, maybe there's more here. And you stir enough, you keep digging in there. But the problem is, is that the Haitian people, it was their trash. So there was all their garbage was thrown in there too. So they'd be eating like their freaking fried chicken or whatever. Ah. And jer- Jamaican jerk chicken. And they'd throw it in there. But some of the stuff had been in there for weeks. And I swear to God, this is true. One time I'm tunneling through and I've got myself. And I could have died because, you know, if this pile collapses on me, it's just a, I'm literally tunneling through to yeah, find no stuff. Shit. Just, I'm just like a rat, basically. I'm like a rat in a tunnel. 
And one time I ran into a family of newborn rats. The mother was gone or whatever. And there was like 12 little newts like this big eating on some of the Jamaican food right there, man. It was the most disgusting thing ever. You're like, just move out of the way, little guys. There's a pair of big E's behind you. Need those. Yeah, it's so true. Like you said, uh, you know, when you're digging or picking, even now it's still like you'll find you'll find those veins. You'll be like, this is definitely from an old person's house. They cleaned out their stuff. Now this whole like, you know, I'm coming up on like someone's collection of Harley or like a bunch of workwear or something. It all comes together. Um, I love what you said about like taking a different route, exploring new places you've explored, never been to in new directions. Cause that's part of the fun. It's not always about the destination. And when you go, even if you take like a different way to work in the morning or something, that's just like yeah. on your route, it, yeah. it's more exciting for your brain subliminally. And it like triggers different like brainwaves and thought patterns. I do that often. Cause I'm like, this is fucking boring. I'm just going to go drive somewhere. Or like the other day I'm like, I'm going to take my dog for a walk in my small town somewhere I've never been, which is hard in my town, but you end up finding cool shit, you know? And I actually, which is crazy. I ended up like driving down this weird road, uh, found like this old graffiti looked like a kind of like a train yard kind of building that was like abandoned, but you could tell like kids party there and shit, you know? And there's this container there and it's full of shit, like a couch, um, like some old clothes. looks like someone was squatting there, but they had like, put a somebody welded a grate so you can't get in but i'm like yo there could be like clothes in here like i could see in but i can't get in because it's a they put a metal grate so the kids would stop like partying there um huh. but you never know what you're gonna find how, you how long like do you think it had been abandoned like that you know oh uh, pro i mean it looked like a few years i mean it wasn't like some 1800s thing but it was like could be like a bunch of old 90s clothing in there Cause it was like just piles of shit. Like I've done um, some of the, I've never been as successful as you on like digging in old barns. I've never been in a mine. I've only done like the barn houses or, or farmhouses. Sorry. Um, but let's talk about that. So like what was, when was your first experience scoring in the wild per se? Like when I think a wild the rag house is not the wild. Like we're talking like, uh, um, a fucking barn, a farmhouse, a mine. Like what was your first experience actually doing one of those and then opening your eyes to like what was out there? Wow. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I remember my first experience doing that. Um, I think it's just, um, uh, you know what? When I was selling to Green for Jeans, which was the San Francisco company I told you about, the, yeah. and, uh, and, and they had a guy from Brazil that, that was a buyer for them that would go around and set up like a we buy Levi's sign and stuff. And, and uh, <coughs> incidentally, that, that picture, the fabric and stuff, that big Levi's, I made that and I still have that. And it's nice. like a homemade Levi thing. And then I, I, I don't know why I did this, but I thought it'd be cool to put American flag material in all the patch holes. So I was up all night. I mean, I literally didn't sleep. This is when I was like 25. So, you know, I had a lot of energy. I still have kind of a lot of energy, but I'm kind of run down. Anyway, so that's what I was doing. So, so I, so I was selling these jeans with all these American flag patches on them and stuff. Uh, but anyway, um, this guy was from Brazil, and he was a jujitsu guy. So they trusted him with all their money, you know, because he'd been robbed a couple times out there, sitting on the side of the road buying Levi's. And the reason I mentioned him is he's the first one that told me. He goes, yeah, he goes, you know, he goes, if you really want to find something, 
you got to do what other people are unwilling to do. You have to basically have a lot of balls. And he said, you got to be willing to go knock on doors. And I had, I had done, uh, sold water filters, uh, you know, before I did this, I was in like a pyramid scam company selling water filters for a company called Equinox. And it was great products. And I spent like $50,000 on success seminars too, because they encourage you to go to all these seminars. And, you know, the crazy thing is you could say I got scammed, but it actually built a foundation. Uh, there's a great, there's a great analogy. Like a guy, let's say you saw me right in 1995 and I'm out there digging a hole in the ground. And every day you go laughing at me, like, look at that fucking idiot. Look at him digging that hole in the ground. What the hell is he doing down there? And you think I'm crazy, right? And I'm digging really, really deep down in the hole. But you don't know what I'm really doing. And what do you think I'm really doing? Digging for gold, fucking oil. I no. don't know. I'm building a foundation, man. And the deeper I go, the bigger a building I can go up. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so that, I dug myself a hell of a hole. I got in like $70,000 of debt when I was young. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of debt, but I do think it's a, it's an ends to a means, you know? So this guy told me basically, <clears throat> this Brazilian guy, it's like, you got to have some balls. You got to, if you really want to make it, you got to go do what other people aren't willing to do. And I had had some experience, you know, pretty much the worst thing in the world is knocking on somebody's door and trying to sell them something. Right. I mean, it's brutal. It's, it's just so it's, it's just, you know, it's terrible. Have you ever done door to door sales? I mean, when I was in high school trying to sell like Christmas crap for a fundraiser or something, but no, I've never really done that. But I do, I talk about this often where, um, you know, in my, in the last few years of my life, I've really realized that like communication skills, like you're saying, building that foundation is so fucking important because I, I deal with so many people all the time, so many staff. Yeah suppliers blah 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 and like i was not a good communicator and i've really like put the work in in the last few years to like better myself in that area because i think that's like the no matter what you do you need that and that can give you success in anything dude if if everybody watching this you know and they're maybe they're young or something and they're like wanting to make it with whatever they're going to do go do door-to-door sales for a year you know because once you do that nothing can really be any worse than that <laughs> So it's like everything else is going to seem easy. It's just like getting up in the morning. If you can get up and sack up in the morning and get up and do some exercise, get a sweat, go for a run, which I wanted to do today, but it's raining out, gave me an excuse. And I have a lot of other excuses. So I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. But, you know, if you can get up in the morning and do, oh, you know what? This is what I used to do. I used to do exercise and then take a cold fucking shower. Yeah. I'm reading some of my old journals and I'm like, yep, take, I'm on the cold shower program. Why do you take a cold shower? Because it sucks. It sucks. But when you get done, you're like, you just accomplished something. So you feel like this, you've, you've made an artificial sense of accomplishment, tricking your brain into thinking that you've done something worthy of respect. And then once you deem yourself worthy of respect, you know, I think other people are attracted to that. And yeah, so because I've done some, here's the deal, right? You're, you're going to figure this out. Because I did the, water filter sales thing and, and a knocking on door thing, trying to sell something, someone sell something to someone. Now it's the opposite. I'm knocking on their door, trying to buy something from them. Right. Yeah. And it, it was very awkward in the beginning. I mean, like, because, because I thought it was just about me. Like I would knock on their door and I'd be like, um, you know, excuse me, ma'am. 
uh, 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 I buy uh, some uh, old Levi's. Do, do, do you have, you know, and I was all nervous, right? And it all changed one day. I was in Wyoming and I knocked on this lady's door. And, and I always thought that like, just like when I was trying to sell them a water filter, I'm thinking what they can do for me, you know? And so when I first started trying to buy clothing by knocking on the door, I thought it was all about me. Like what, what can these people do? What do they have that I want? Right. I never even considered that I might have something that they want, which is money or companionship or helping fix a fence or freaking go chase down some cows that got loose. Or, I mean, I could go on with like a thousand things that I've knocked on a door and then your life goes in a direction you didn't know was going to happen. Like, totally. you know, they, they say, oh shit, you know, yeah, I don't have anything, but my freaking grandfather four hours away does, you know, let's go. And you drive in the car with them and you become best friends with them for three days. But <clears throat> anyway, so this one time in Wyoming, I knock on a door and the lady says, um, she just looked at me like in shock. And she said, I've never had it happen this fast. This is unbelievable. And I'm getting fucking chills, man. I really am. I've talked about this story before, but it's where everything changed for me. She said that her power had gotten shut off the day before. An hour before I got there, she'd been praying to God that something would happen to bring some money into her life. And here I am at her doorstep an hour later, freaking trying to buy some shit from her. And I did. I bought stuff from her. And she was like crying the whole time because it was like a real spiritual cathartic thing for her. And, and then I'm like, and that's when everything changed for me. I'm like, wow, I'm not, I, I got to stop thinking about this. Like I'm trying to get something from them for me. I got to start thinking about it. Like, Hey, I'm Britt Eaton. I'm here to bring some fucking joy into these people's life. Any little bit I can. And, 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 and what can I do for them? You know, what can I do for them? Can I give them money? Can I help them with something? Can I just sit with them for three hours because their cat died last week? You know, or their, their dog got run over yesterday in which is every one of these is real things that have happened because I've done it so much. Anyway, that's it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so true. And, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's about perspective because you're saying like your perspective on the whole situation changed. And I think that's important in life is to understand that there's always different perceptions. And so many times we have like fucked up stories about what we do and who we are that's backwards that are not like serving us properly. They're like bringing us down instead of like helping us in our mission, which obviously at that was like your epiphany mo moment when you figured out that like you're actually out there fucking helping people and it's a better way to look at it and also a better way to get what you need to continue your fucking journey and um, also also um it's like i have a hard time differentiating between like this this thing like am i honest because i'm inherently honest or am i honest because i've realized that it pays to be honest like i'm only honest because i'm greedy <laughs> you know i don't know but i know one thing's for sure you know, what that song, the instant karma, uh, John Lennon, you know, you know, that song, yeah. instant karma is going to yeah. get you. I was with a friend of mine one time and we went in, we went into this, uh, at Princeton, or I grew up in Princeton. We went to the university store. We were going to play squash. You know, we used to sneak into the gyms and, and play squash, which is a great sport, especially in wintertime. Cause you get a great sweat. <clears throat> anyway, I gave him a few bucks. Um, he went to one, he went to the sporting area. I went to like get uh, some sodas or something. When we get outside the store, he gives me my money back. 
I'd given him money to buy a ball and a squash ball. And you know anything about squash, they're like these super hard balls. You know, they're like, they're not like racquetballs. They're really hard. Yeah. And he gives me my money back. I go, why are you giving me my money back? We were like, we were like 19. Oh, fuck. This guy just had brain surgery on Wednesday, by the way. I don't even know if he's alive or dead right now. He's in Germany. He was my best friend growing up. Paul Greco, I love you, man. He gives me my money back. I said, why are you giving me my money back? You got the balls. He goes, yeah, but I stole them. I just did a five-finger coupon. You know, we're from New Jersey. Everybody's always stealing shit. I'm like, oh, dude. And I, but I was now different than I was when I was in sixth grade and I was a kleptomaniac. At that point, I was smoking a lot of weed and stuff. And I'm like, no, dude, that's not cool. But whatever, I didn't, you know, we were already halfway to the thing. And he's the one that got the karma, not me. Well, guess what happens? He'd forgotten his squash goggles. And five minutes into playing, bam, I fucking hit the ball. goes off the thing, goes right into his eyeball. And he's just out. And we had to take him to the hospital. And he got hit in the eye with the same fucking squash ball that he just stole. There you go. Instant fucking karma. Instant karma's going to get you, man. Gonna get you. It's funny, like you say, am I doing this because I'm greedy or is this like actually because I want to help people? And I think that's a super interesting subject because it is, it is, we all probably think about that. And you know, there's like that saying where you're like, um, well, the more people, the more value you can bring to people, the more, the more like, uh, you will get in return. It's like the more people you can affect with what you're doing in life, solving people's problems, helping people, touching people, not in that way, but you know what I'm saying? It's like the more value you have in the world and the more wealth you should have or like joy you should have in your life because you're helping other people have joy. And I think whether the motivations, it's tricky because it is it comes back to like your motivations in it. Like, are you just doing it because you're greedy and are you actually helping people? Or are you not helping people? That's a, that's a tricky subject. And I do think about that sometimes. Cause I'm like, I like helping people like this podcast. I don't make money off this. Like this podcast is literally to like entertain people or give them some knowledge about something, right? Like there's no money being made from this. I actually enjoy it. And I enjoy the fact that it helps people, but yet, you know, I also, don't feel bad if someone was like, let me sponsor this podcast and give you money for doing that. I'd be like, fuck yeah, I want that, you know, because I think this does help people. So it's an interesting subject. I think everyone has to like think about it for themselves and like what their motivations are. And I think the, the issue is if you're genuine about the helping people, even if you do want the money and you're like, you should, I don't think they have to be mutually beneficial. I think the real greedy people end up doing things that pretend to help people that don't really help people. And it comes back to them in the end. Because they're not genuine about it. But I don't know. My, my thoughts or they are... Become, or they become president of the United States. Yeah, exactly. And then it all washes out in the end. Um, my son last night went to... He's on varsity hockey. He's a sophomore. And he, went to, he told me that he went to practice. And there's this one kid that's... He, he's just like a beginner. And he, the poor kid, you know... He's he's he shouldn't even be on the team, but there's no JV this year, so they had to put him on this team. Anyway, he was all by himself in the other locker room. Like everybody's in one locker room, and the other kid's by himself. So my son like said that he went and sat with that other kid, who's basically ostracized by the team because he's not as good or whatever. It's a very sad situation, but he said that he talked to him and stuff, and he said, "Dad, it really made me feel good, you know, going in there and doing that." Like. I don't know. I said, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm more proud of you for doing that than anything you could do on the ice, you know? And, and we all got to look for opportunities to help people if we can. And I think that it's funny, you know, maybe originally I did it 
you know, was, was kinder or nicer or whatever, because I wanted some gain for me. But I think now there's more of a genuine, I don't know, you know, it's yeah, weird. You it's learn like, to appreciate it. And as you grow, you learn to like appreciate helping people. Cause it does make you feel good. You can't deny that. Like it makes you feel good. Yeah. It's that hundred percent. But also what's really weird for me now. Okay. Like for instance, I went back to the Rose bowl like two years ago. And now, now I like, I love it so much more, even though it's different and everything. It's like, I find that the things that I love to do now, I love them even more than I ever loved them before. There's like this, this, this feeling of nostalgia that enhances the experience on pretty much everything that I do. Like if I have a beer now, which I do a lot, you know, just, just opening the beer, you know, like I never got enjoyment out of opening the beer when I was 18 years old, but now I'm like a beer and I open it. And that's like, gives me pleasure just to open it, you know, and first, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so it's like that when I play hockey now, I'm not playing hockey just for today. I'm playing hockey for every other time I ever played hockey. So I'm filled with all this emotion and stuff every time, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for people that go surfing. I'm sure that there's a lot of surfers that get older that just go out and they don't even freaking ride a wave. They just go out and just sit there on their board and it gives them some sort of a joy just being out there, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I've never really thought about it like that. You know, with snowboard surfing, I'm still learning and snowboarding. Like it, I relate to that because I've done it my whole life. Right. And I had a period after, like I stopped doing it like seriously where I didn't like it. Cause I was like, I'm not doing it at the level that I was once. So it like upsets me that I'm not, but I still yeah. want to do it. I t- took the enjoyment out of it for a while, but now I'm back into like enjoying it where I'm like, I do have that nostalgia and I'm like doing it because I enjoy it. I'm doing it and I don't have to like be doing the tricks that I once did. I can just enjoy it for what it is, you know? But also you probably were doing it more back then. Well, yeah, it would be like exactly like a hundred days and now I'll be like, yeah, that's, that's it. So you have to look at it from that perspective, like, okay, maybe you're not as good at it anymore because you just haven't been, you're not, you're not as consistent. Like me, when I play hockey all the time, I can actually get to, you know, if I don't play for a month, I suck. But if I play every day, I think, oh, you know, I'm getting back in the groove of it, you know? But when I go, if I were to go knock on a door now or just drive around out in the country, like, I, I don't even feel like, I, I mean, you, you have to understand. I mean, like, I couldn't pay the bills if I didn't find stuff for years. And so, you know, now it's like this incredible, I, but I, I, there was like this pressure, this unbelievable pressure on me all the time to succeed and achieve just to make money or whatever. And once that pressure gets off, man, it's like, it's such a beautiful feeling. Cause then you can just enjoy the experience without having to have a huge payoff, you know? I mean, yeah. It, and it, I think that, that's, that's something I've struggled with, I guess, because a lot like you, like, you know, I, I didn't, um, you know, my origins in this business, like I got brought in through our father, but it wasn't like, he's like, here's a hundred grand, go do your business. He just told us how to do it. So it was a huge leg up, but I never started with like a lot of money. And like through this whole journey of like learning how to be a businessman, cause we have like a lot of staff, we got like 50 staff, like our payroll can be huge, you know? And it's a lot of responsibility on us to like, make sure that like money's coming in to make sure that people are fucking paid and rents are yeah. paid and whatever else. That's and stressful. Like, That's stressful. It's stressful. And there's been times when it's like been really stressful and there's times when it's not. But for me, over the years, I've had to learn to like keep focused and keep it fun, no matter if it's super fucking stressful or not. Because when you're when you're in the stress mode, 
nothing gets accomplished and you're you're like in reactivary mode react reactionary mode right yeah and yeah it's fight or flight but when you're in like this like you're saying like you have like say a cushioning or you're like i got money in the bank i'm cool you end up having more fun and more good happens from that place because you're more like in offense mode right totally 100 percent. i think that's it's all it's it's literally the same thing with courting a woman you know it's if you're nervous and you haven't had a lot of success, you're hard up, you haven't gotten any action for freaking six months or something, and then you try to talk to a girl, you're an absolute freaking shit show, right? Yeah. But if you just had five great nights in a row, you know, and you're feeling the groove, you know, you don't, no girl can stop, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to turn you down. Yeah. You it's, what it and, and it's the same yeah. thing, you know, with, with yeah. going out on the road, finding stuff, you know, confidence, it breeds confidence, success breeds success. But don't get me wrong, like, I mean, I'm, I, I am so addicted. And I, I think I've, I think I've kind of lost a little bit of the addiction of having to have something to like feed the addiction. But for, for years, I was, I don't know if I was brainwashed or just addicted or what the deal was. But if I didn't go, if I didn't get some serious freaking denim or something phenomenal vintage clothing on a trip, it's it's like total depression, like very similar to what you would feel with doing like withdrawal from drugs or something, you know. Well, that's and mind exploring. Mind exploring is the worst because mind exploring is literally the hardest thing imaginable. Like it's so dirty. You're you're you come out and you're just your clothes. You have to throw them away basically because the amount of dust and shit in there and everything. It's so horrible for for a human being to be in those mines. I mean, I know one mine in Nevada. They, they called the mine the Widowmaker. The average guy, when he started working there, only lived for six months. The day he started working, the day he died was six months after. So the women in the town only wore black because they were always going to funerals. I found a funeral dress in a mine there once, to be honest with you. That's a true story. Um, <clears throat> but the reason that the guys kept showing up, see if you can figure it out. Why did all these young boys from Utah keep going to this mine? Because they are a high-paying mining company? Because they were badass? No, I just told you. I just told you. All the men were dead. It was a town filled with women because the guys were dying left and right. So the the mine owners were like, hey, look at this. We got a 10 to 1 women. to." It's the primal thing, man. That's so true. And that's like in a typical mining town that wasn't so dangerous, you probably had like 10 to 1 guy to girl where like you're never going to find anybody. There you go. Exactly. Uh, just like exactly. a typical snowboard town or ski town. It's 10 to 1 guys to girls. <laughs> so I want to talk about the mine. I want to dive into the to the conversation of these mines. And, you know, everybody knows what a mine is. It's a fucking shaft in the ground where people pull out gold or copper, whatever they do. You know, mining obviously was like what America was founded on, per se, like the railroad, the mining industry, uh, the lumber industry. These are like cornerstones of like north america essentially right like through the 1800s and before i think that that the west got settled and manifest destiny and all of that happened a lot to do with the gold rush however there was a lot of bullshit that the government propagated to get people out west as well so i'm like part historian on this stuff i mean i've had to be i have to to find the places to go i've I've got i'm looking over my 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 uh, library here i mean i got massive research books so i've learned all this stuff and uh so yeah 
yes, the gold rush got people up, but also, hey, move to Montana. Look how fertile it is, you know? And then people get out there and they get this crummy ass. They've, they've spent their fortune coming out from Boston after immigrating from Latvia or some shit. And they're out there and, and they got, and then they go, they starve to death, you know, and they're eating their freaking shoes and, yeah, and, and they're, they're like, one potato a, for a, a week. Rocky mountainside piece of land that you can't grow a fucking carrot on. And uh, yeah, there you go. That's terrible, man. And I'm sure well, like there was a lot of bullshit in the gold rush too. Like not probably more often than not, people fucking struck out and didn't get shit. Right. And it was like this yeah. huge hype. hundred percent, hundred, probably 95% struck out, but yeah. it's just like going to the, it's, you know what? It's exactly like going to Las Vegas. They didn't build those massive freaking towering casinos, uh, you know, because someone gave them charity and they were able to use the money to buy those buildings. They built them on the backs of all the poor sops who've lost all their money, right? Yeah. Remortgaging <laughs> so, their house to fucking you know, play, It's, it's play the play. same exact thing, man. I mean, it's actually, I never really thought of this before, but there is a great analogy to made that Nevada was the number one, you know, gold mine place was, was the state of Nevada. There's more ghost towns in Nevada than anywhere else. And what a coincidence, it also has the most casinos of any place in, in, in the country, right? So it's like that, everybody, it's like the mentality of Americans have associated Nevada with like striking rich, making the money. Let's go like win a shitload of dollars in uh in, in Nevada, and that and that yeah, like that whole mentality started in the gold rush. I guess it's crazy. They played off hundred percent. It's um, a gamble, man. So who and, who, but, who but didn't even, make like, good money in the gold rush was fucking Levi's because they were not in the business of gold. But they were in the business of supplying the fashion or the work clothing, the hardcore work clothing that the miners would buy. And 95% of those guys struck out, but 100% of them of them needed to buy some fucking jeans, some shovels, whatever else they fucking needed to go and try. No, right? you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The, the way to make money is to capitalize on the poor sops. Just like in Las Vegas, the guy that has a taco stand next to the casino, or how about the guy who has the liquor store next to the casino? That's the guy that's going to make some money, right? Yeah. He's going to make he's going to make money 100 percent of the time because everyone that get, freaking loses their money, they're going to they're going to spend their last five bucks on getting hammered, you know. But but there is something that's very very American. I don't know if if it's if it's Canadian, probably is too. But just optimism. You know, I mean, that's the great thing about my country is is the idea that we came here that anybody could go from zero to sixty. Anybody could become rich. Andrew Carnegie comes over penniless, becomes the first billionaire from Scotland with no money, he had no no idea. He he wrote, he paid a guy a million dollars a year for twenty years. This guy Napoleon Hill to study millionaires and find out because he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand. Thinking how, grow rich, Napoleon Hill, great fucking book for anybody out there. There you go, baby. There yeah. you go, baby. That's it. Yes. Do you have somebody like doing that for you? Like guy over there that's Googling as I'm talking. That's giving yeah, you this dude. information. Hey, Ricky, good job. <laughs> God, dude, that's like one of my favorite books. I fucking talked about that a bunch of times, but yeah, that's, that's G shit. And that book is like a hundred years old, but they've kind of, but it's still so fucking relevant. If you read that book, the studies Napoleon Hill did a hundred years ago will help you so much today and probably a hundred years from now. There's another book that's like 3,000 years old, and it's called The Richest Man in Babylon. Read that one. That's okay. really cool, too. And it's all about, it's all about you know, 
every hundred, every dollar you make, take 10 cents and put it away. Every hundred dollars you make, you know, that kind of a thing. It's that principles like that. But the point is, is, is that, you know, of those 95% of poor saps that struck out and didn't make any money when they were looking for gold or whatever, a hundred percent of them had a belief that they would, or at least some sort of like hope, hope that they would succeed. And I think that's the same attitude that anybody in this business has to be if they're going out picking or looking for stuff or what have you. And, um, you know, I could tell you my whole American picker story at some point too. That's a pretty good one. Um, yeah. So, you know, you know about that. I probably told you about that before. I've, uh, optimism is, is clutch. I believe it. Um, like you said, we're talking before about like fucking being depressed when shit's not so good. You come home from a trip and shit's not so good. It's like, you've got to like kick yourself out of that attitude and be optimistic for the next one and just get right into it and like get out of that funk because we are the, the drug that we seek is dopamine. That is the reaction of us finding the stuff. It's the same drug that's triggered in your brain when you do heroin, like literally. So it, it's, it's, it's like, it's a different thing, but it's actually the same fucking thing. The way our brain receives these, these, uh, reaction to finding something super rare, like being Indiana Jones or fucking doing heroin. Jeans. That's why it's genius. Yeah. Jeans. Indiana jeans. Indiana jeans. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you want to hear, you want to hear the most, the, uh, the most serendipitous. I told you about the lady praying or whatever deal, but I've got, I got another one that is truly mind-blowing okay let's hear it. if you want to yeah. you want to, you want me to roll it. Story, man. okay okay so in 2009 i think it was 2008 uh a guy named caesar padilla padilla he had a store called uh i think it was called heart it was a he had a couple of vintage stores he had like at one point i think he had one in japan one in la one in new york i'm, I'm not getting the name of the store right but maybe it was anyway he came up to me at the Rose Bowl and said, "Hey, I think it's really cool what you're doing. I'm, I, I would, would you be okay if I if I approached some magazines and got you know an article?" About it? Yeah. So next thing you know, he calls me up and says that um, the New York Times wants to do an article on me and he's going to write it. Okay. Blah blah blah. The article comes out. They call me Indiana Jeans. That's where that name comes from from that article. And I was like, I was like, oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> you know, I was like stoked, you know, I was like, that's cool. So they call me Indiana jeans. And then from there, you know, once you get publicity at that level, it kind of starts to snowball a little bit. So then I started having, um, other magazines call me outside magazine, American airlines, all these different magazines calling me. And I do some articles and stuff. And then, um, the TV thing starts to happen for me. And I think that you've had some stuff with TV and I've had some stuff, but anyway, getting to this thing, I end up doing this TV show for, uh, discovery channel. It's actually going to be, a, a called Freenet, which is going to be there. Um, they thought, they thought in 2010, 11, that it was going to be the, uh, the 3d television was going to take over the world, you know? So they, they hire me and they put me in this hat up here. You can see it up there. Some of my paraphernalia from that show, you see that hat there and, nice. and there's the, uh, the clapper for the filming and stuff. And there's some of the episodes up there. Anyhow, they hired me for this show. And there's a whole point here that's going to get to, and I'm going to sum it up. At one point, Indiana jeans is there's a scene where I'm sitting in a Cairo cafe talking to a French Egyptologist 
at a Cairo cafe. And I didn't even realize it till two years after we filmed it. Um, I was watching the episode. Oh no, I know what it was. I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark again. And I'm like, holy fucking shit. That's what I did. In other words, three years after the New York Times called me Indiana Jeans, I'm filming a TV show in fucking Egypt in the exact same famous scene where Indiana Jones is having tea at a Cairo cafe with a French Egyptologist. About to get poisoned by a date. By That's a right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. But I didn't even know, I didn't even realize it till a couple of years later. And it had like, that scene had been written for whoever was going to host that show. Like when they wrote the, the treatment for discovery channel, they didn't know that I was going to be the guy. They didn't even, you know, or any of that. So it's just, it was an unbelievable serendipitous coincidence of which I seem to be involved in a lot of, and I love it. That's mostly. amazing. So was that show ghost town gold? No, that was called uh, the ancient life which is just a shit of a name, to be honest with you. Okay, so so th- this brings us to a whole other fucking realm of your, uh, of hey, your wait, life. Hang on, hang on one second. You keep talking. I got, I got to get something. No, go ahead. I'm listening. Oh, I'm yeah, okay. Sorry, sorry. So uh, you were in a te- – I've watched Ghost Town Gold, and when it, that came out, I don't even know how many years ago. Um, but that is essentially uh, – uh, a history channel show where you and a partner go around and you go to ghost towns, you go to kind of literally doing what you do in real life, but for a TV series, um, it was nothing. It was absolutely nothing like what I do in real life. Okay. Let me put it this way. It was supposed to, it was called ghost town gold. Okay. And the intro is me going down in mines. Like they do the, uh, the sizzle part, you know, like the, uh, the cold open, it shows me doing all this crazy cool shit. That's real. That's what I do. Ghost Town Goal, halfway through the filming, one of the camera guys, I, I filmed with him on the other show first, and we did this one. He goes, he looked at me, he goes, wow, they should t- change the name from Ghost Town Gold Gold to Trailer Park Trash. <laughs> because they had me like digging through like trailers and stuff. Here's a, here's a, here's me and uh with a mummy. See that? Yeah, yeah. That's me oh, and a mummy and so uh crazy. So I've never seen this fucking show. So obviously, like reality. <laughs> These are called reality shows, but in reality, they're not fucking reality. They're bullshit. They're scripted. They're written, right? Like, what's your experience? Yeah, that's not a, that wouldn't be called a reality show. Uh, Ghost Town Gold would have been a reality show. This was like a this was like a docudrama. That's different. Oh, okay. So give us the synopsis of this this show. Like, what was it? How did you? Well, you just what, that was where um, what I was supposed to be this like uh, inquisitive sort of archaeologist guy who was going to go around and 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 you know and unearth the the world's mysteries you know uh, as it is ghost town gold was supposed to be a uh you know like a for-profit like hey this guy does all this cool stuff look at him but you know it it, i mean i don't know it's fun and i I think it's worth a watch but it certainly is not indicative of my life and what my life's really like i mean you know can you talk to it about it like you got cast for that of course because you got fame through like these articles and stuff and you're famous in the business and you know um it went for one season or what two seasons it went okay so first of all the origins of that are a little bit what you said but a little different so i i around probably 2005 2006 all these reality shows that becomes the big thing, right? They got the ones with, uh, you know, um, what's her toes, uh, Paris Hilton, you know, or whatever, everybody's blowing up with reality shows. So I started watching all this garbage and thinking to myself, my God, 
my life's way more interesting than that. And I never even, I swear to God, it's true. I never thought that I'd be good on camera or anything. Right. And I still don't know if I'm, I am at all, but, but what I did know was that the people that I met and some of these stories I experienced were a million times more interesting than all the pollution on television. So I got my cousin who is a uh, filmmaker and I said, let's go out in the field. What would it cost me to pay you to go film me around? And I think you were doing the same thing when I saw you at the Rose Bowl, right? You were yeah, developing so we had, something. We had a pilot produced, which was going to be like a similar, we're talking like these are likened to like American Pickers or whatever, these shows. And we were going to have a similar one, but it was going to be like us going to like buy out retail stores and do our, ty- our type of digging. But ours never made it past pilot. It just got thrown, which happens often, you know? All the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, how many shows go for a first season? And you're like, wow, that was a cool show. And then you never see it again. Uh, or, or, or bands, I guess the same thing. Bands break up. What did I just read? A freaking like, oh my God. Like, um, like Eric Clapton was like fired from his first couple of bands. Like Eric Clapton, you know, like it's just, it's just, it's crazy when you start to get in and the politics, network, the politics they, and TV. Buy up, the networks buy scripts and buy like rights to shows and they'll buy like a thousand shows and maybe produce like 10. Like it's that crazy of numbers because they're like, we want to control, oh, we want to control yeah. like if these things go to air and if it's a competing show that one we have, we need to debt it so that nobody can make it. Like they'll just throw money at these things and totally. them or try them and they don't work. And it's like, it's a crazy. Yeah. Once I got in it, I was like, this is who's the, uh, who's the, who's the head coach of the Canucks? Oh, fuck. I'm not even a hockey guy. I should know that. I don't know. Yeah, you are. You are a disgrace to your nation, my friend. Dude, every guy in Vancouver right now is hating. They're going to stop watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're going to like me for what I just said. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, the Canucks get a new head coach. The first thing that guy is going to do is bring in his whole team, get rid of everybody else. No matter how good they are, he's going to get rid of everybody that was on the other guy's program. He's going to start looking for different players, new goalie, whatever. It's just the way it works. And TV, the, the changeover in television is 50 million times more rapid than the changeover in sports. Every freaking year, these guys are going to another company, another job. Everyone that I would talk to like this, when we were having the initial conversations, you know, and we'd yeah. have these meetings or whatever, they were never around once the show actually was about to air. So all the people that ever supported me weren't there to put the promotion money into it. And the people that if they'd already made these shows, the people that were there, they wanted to put their money for promotions into their own shows, right? They don't want to be, they don't want to give any credit to the guy before them for their great idea, hiring me, you know? So they happened to me over and over again. The greatest example is when travel channel did a show with me, I got signed to a contract. I never worked a day. Uh, two days before we were first to start to go filming, they, they, they got a new person. That person canceled the show. I got a check for $50,000 and I never worked a damn day for them on that one. <laughs> but I had a guaranteed clause with my contract, man. So, but I had to pay a bunch of taxes. IRS, if you're listening, I did pay a lot of taxes on that one. They're coming for you, man. So they're that's another thing too. Like, the actors like you got you got cast for this ghost town gold you had a partner what's your what was your partner's name is he is he a friend of yours yeah he's still a good friend of mine um he actually hooked up with my he he actually uh hooked up with my my brother's wife right as my brother's marriage was ending and they were together for a couple years that's a whole nother story that he got divorced and everything else but you know that's a real rude awakening when you fly into denver 
and uh, your brother calls you and says, Hey, Britt, because uh, my brother's Colorado guy too. He goes, Hey, Britt, uh, take a drive by my old house and see what you see. I said, What do you mean? He goes, You just got into Denver. I called him because we were going to go party in that night. We were going to go to the bar Shakedown Street, I think it's called, which is a deadhead bar or Terrapin Station or whatever it's called. Anyway, we, uh, <clears throat> he goes, Before you come over to my place, go by my old house. And I'm like, Why? He's like, Just drive by there. I go, Okay, that's weird. I drive by there and what do I see? I see the freaking my buddy's truck, pickup truck, canvas plate, Kansas plate sitting out there. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, my brother's marriage was already kind of in the gutter then anyway. So I, and whatever. And Scott and I are still really good friends. But what happened with that was the show was supposed to be me and it was supposed to be my dog. Here's my other dog here. That's Shadow. Hey, Shad. Shad. Up, Shadow. That's Shadow. But before Shadow, I had Trooper. Now that's a long story. How I got Trooper, basically Blizzard on the Arizona Highway. Da da da. da. We get pulled over. Uh, this dog comes out of the nowhere. Uh, the cop pulls us over for speeding in the Blizzard, and the dog is freezing and starving and pregnant. So that we named that dog Trooper after the state trooper that pulled us over. Right. And so then Trooper has babies. Da da da. So Trooper's my dog. So the idea of the TV show was Trooper's my co-pilot. So instead of talking to Scott, I'm talking to the dog. Like. All right, troops, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to this house over here. I'm going to go knock on the door. Well, I'm knocking on the door. You're going to go into that building there and make sure to chase out any varmints so that if I get permission to go in there, we can go in there next, you know, that kind of a thing. So that was the idea, like having a, uh, a dialogue, a connection with the audience through the communication with the dog. Yeah, that that's my a great idea. idea. I think so too, bro. <laughs> I couldn't agree more that my idea was great. <laughs> anyway. So they didn't, they said, okay, uh, the dog thing is cool. Um, <clears throat> this is what they say. We'll use the dog in season two. Dude, if you don't put the dog in season one, you fucking idiots, you don't get a season two. Come on. Yeah. I mean, it's like the arrogance, right? The arrogance. Uh, and it, it's the typical like corporate world, Hollywood world trying to like, trying to identify with the world that we work in or the world of like the, this other world and it like not being represented authentically, which then kills it. And yeah, Listen, my, my analogy is this, the guy, you know, the guy's from freaking New York and he's a producer or LA. Right. And he, and he's, he's driving through the Nevada desert and he takes a back road. And what does he see? He sees this wild Mustang running back and forth. And he goes, Oh my God. And he just stops there in the side road and says, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Look at that thing. Oh my God, that wild Mustang. I wonder how he got there. I wonder what the history is. Like, did the Spanish let him go and his ancestors let him go thousands of years ago? Whatever. Who knows? And he decides he's going to go back and make a TV show about it, right? And they go, oh my God, we got to get that wild Mustang on t television. We're going to go make a whole TV show with that wild Mustang. And you know what the first thing they do is? They fucking rope the wild Mustang, put a fucking halter on him and a bit in his fucking mouth and make him do what they want him to do no more wild mustang and then they put that on television right yeah. they don't put they don't put the wild mustang it's true it's sad <laughs> and I, I they still have yet to come out with a show in my opinion representing the vintage world in any good light or even authentic light from like this whole you know it all started with uh, American Pickers, um, the Pawn, Pawn Stars, like those shows were like the originators of like that reality genre. 
but yet there's still nothing in the vintage world. And it's so fucking interesting. Like, no, no, we were, we were negotiating with history channel prior to them having American pickers a year before American pickers came out. We were in negotiations with history channel. And I mean, I, I don't want to get sued for anything I'm going to say here, but yeah, anyway, I, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. So, I'm going to keep I'll, my I'll, mouth shut. Part, one, no, one I think you can figure out what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I want to touch on this subject is that they pay fuck all for the first season, right? Because they, they'll only pay you big if you're no. a star or did that's they not true. Okay, okay. That's not really true. The truth is they offer you fuck all. Okay. My first ever, my first ever uh, communication on the phone with, uh, with the executives it, when they were going to give me a deal was like 2011. And it's like, um, it's like six people in a conference with me and this is the big deal. And they, my producers told me, Hey, they're going to offer you the money now. Da, 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 da. And so we get on the conference and they go, so, you know, we're going to do your show and da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, awesome. They go, so we want to talk to you real quick about the money. And I go, okay, that sounds great. And they go, we'd like to offer you, um, $3,000 per episode crickets. I don't say a fucking word. And so the, uh, uh, Brit, are you, are you still there? Are you still there, Brit? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm here. They go, oh, oh, we thought you got disconnected. We didn't hear you. So what was your answer? I said, nothing. My answer was nothing. They go, what do you think of offer? I go, I think it sucks. I go, I'm not going to leave my life that I'm already making more money than that to go work for $3,000 an episode for you guys. That's, that's insane. And expose all my secrets to the world, create a million copycats. You know, that's just dumb. I'm only going to do it if I'm getting paid really well. So next thing you know is, 15,000 an episode. Think about that. So that's like me going and seeing that jacket behind you and being like, Oh, Hey, you know, I'd give you $300 for that. And then you say, no way. And I say, okay, okay, okay. I'll give you $3,000 for it and offer you a more reasonable price. And that just proves that I'm what? Fucking slime bag for one thing. There you go, buddy. There you go. They already have it in the budget to pay the talent that much. If they're willing to go to 15, right, then, yeah. you know. And that, that that's like something to – for any business or any dealings you have in life, it's like those, those interactions that are so early in the relationship affect the whole relationship because you're like now you know that they're fucking – dirt bag trying to lowball you probably trying to take that extra budgetary money for themselves or whatever it is and it's so in the same in like a vintage deal if you come into someone and be like i'll give you 100 bucks for that shirt that you know is a thousand dollar shirt and then you're like ah fine i'll give you 700 they're like fuck you because you already you know you i know you were trying to screw me so you gotta- i have you know how you know how everybody says like there's like all these there's all these great quotes that are misrepresented the best one of all is the abraham lincoln quote that um, good things come to those who wait. Oh, honey, good things come to those who wait. I thought that was right? a Heinz quote, a catch-up quote, man. <laughs> well, Abraham Lincoln said it, and then probably Heinz used it on the bottle cap. But it's actually this. Good things come to those who wait, but only what is left over from those who hustle. That's his fucking quote. So yeah. it's, it's like the exact opposite of what people take it as. And here's another one. Everybody says, oh, don't do business with friends. Don't do business with friends. It could ruin the relationship. It could ruin the friendship. You know what? Fuck that. Do business with people the minute you fucking meet them because then you know if they're worthy of being your friend or not. 
because you don't really ever know any, what anybody's all about until you have some sort of money involvement with them. That's when you find out if they're a scumbag or not. Right? That's true. I never thought about it that way. There's another one that I know called um, this one. This one sticks with me because somebody said this to me when I was young. I was like in my teens and I'm sitting around like working at a restaurant and I was telling someone like, oh, I'm going to go move out west to be a snowboarder and this and that. And they were like, oh, I'm a, you're a jack of all trades. And I was like, a master, jack of all trades, master of none. And I was like, fuck you. Like, why are you saying that to me? Like, I'm, you know, I'm just doing my thing, whatever. Now, it stuck with me because it pissed me off, right? And then the real saying is a jack of all trades, but a master of none is oftentimes better than a master of none. And everyone misconstrues that statement. So I think a lot of these are. Um, oh, really? That's really interesting. I didn't know that. I yeah. love it. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. Huh. Um, I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, you're totally right. Okay. I want to I throw it back to uh, the mines. Let's talk about the mines again. Let's talk about. I want to get back into talking about some clothing, talking about the mines again, because to me, this is like very, very, very interesting shit. And I think the viewers, listeners want to want to hear about this stuff okay so you go into these mines mining clothing is like levi's were created as mining jeans no i'm just joking i'm just screwing around with you. <laughs> you you can talk as much or as little as you want but there's everybody knows that all these uh, for people talking. watching this was our this was our cue that he can't ask me something as i start holding up this pink envelope then he can't ask me something, but I'm just joking. I'm I'm fake. That was a fake, a, a fake, fake rebuttal. You fake already rebuttal. put it on TV, so nothing we're gonna say here is more incriminating. But yeah, so first of all, I, my one question is like, um, I want to he, like hear from you. Like, what is it like? You obviously fucking do you follow that guy or do you know that guy who has that YouTube channel, uh, My Ghost Town or some shit? Uh, tons. Yeah, of- I'm friends with him. You're talking about uh, Ciro Gordo. Yes, yeah, yeah, Ciro Gordo. Town living. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I did a TV show. So I got called by, uh, by Disney plus like three, two and a half years, two, two and a half years ago, I think it was Disney plus called me and they wanted to do an episode with me for Jeff Goldblum's TV show on Disney plus uh, the world, according to Jeff Goldblum. And throughout the process, I just have to say the greatest thing about working with Jeff Goldblum and who's amazing is, is their producers. But right before we start filming, at Cerro Gordo, the place you're talking about, they come up to me and they're like, listen, Britt, you know, <clears throat> Jeff tends to get off track. He's not very good at staying on track. So we need you as the, the guest expert host, the guest host expert to, uh, to keep Jeff on track. And I just laughed. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're asking the wrong freaking guy on that one, man. <laughs> um, oh, so That's crazy. I've watched because uh, Jeff Goldblum did an episode of that show at the Rose Bowl. Yeah, that same that same episode. That oh, was the okay, same okay. episode that I was in, and they used that chick, the meow chick, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I forget. She was like the queen of vintage from Rin's books, right? That one. <laughs> um, okay, so about so that show. If you want to, if you want to follow somebody, go watch that show. It's called like My Ghost Town on YouTube about Sierra Gordo. This guy fucking bought a ghost town, and he's like cleaning up the town. He burnt down the fucking saloon in the town by accident it's yeah. crazy and but that was an unbelievably awesome building man and somehow or another the building sits there for 130 years and then the guy's there and he gets stuck there in the winter time and then he becomes famous because he gets stuck there and you know i don't 
he's a, he's a really super nice guy, really likable guy. I still communicate with him, but now he's, you know, he's like super famous, you know, and I've known a few people that have blown up before my eyes. Like that dude probably has five other TV opportunities. What the fuck was that? What was that? He probably has like five other TV opportunities a day come across his plate. You know what I mean? Like he just sits around answering the phone and turning down opportunities all day and then going, okay, that sounds pretty good. How much are you going to pay me? You know, like he is blown up. And I've known a few other people that have gone stratospheric in their rise to popularity. And unfortunately, you know, once, once somebody blows up like that, your relationship with them, you know, unless you grew up with them or something or your blood related to them, it's like pretty much over. You know, yeah, I hear but, that. but he's a really, really nice guy. I mean, and here's the funny thing. The dude has been living in the ghost town for freaking three years now and goes exploring in his minds. He didn't know anything about my exploring. I explored his minds way before he did. I mean, some of them I explored and, and then he learned, he, he learned, he got someone to help him learn how to repel and learn how to do everything. And he finally found a pair of Levi's and, and this is another one of these things, just like the Cerro Gordo thing or the castle dome one where the guy says he found half a million dollars of jeans. And I actually was there and I appraised them and <laughs> it's a fraction, a fraction of what he thinks it is value wise. Well, this um, Cerro Gordo guy only found one tattered pair from what I've seen. Yeah. 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 And it's reported on like the New York times reports that it's a hundred thousand dollar pair of jeans that he found. Yeah. yeah. It's worth like $400, dude. And they're saying it's a $100,000 thing. Did you see what they look like? So funny, it's man. like a couple of buttons and a waistband. I've seen you know? episodes of- And they're like 1910. They're not even really early. Yeah. Which to me, that's early. But fuck, for, for a real mind digger, that's not that early. And I've, I've seen episodes of like American Pickers or Pawn Stars where they're like talking about like regular, like early, like 70s red lines or whatever. And they're like- these are thousand dollar jeans. And you're like, those are fuck all like hundred dollar jeans. You know, it's so misrepresented. Here's the deal. I was watching antiques roadshow, right? So my original concept for my show, when I started developing my show with my cousin, so then we owned the rights to it and then we went to pitch it. And that's when we ended up partnering with the production company that got us the TV show. But, um, and I, and I got my cousin on all these shows too. He was a producer on all my shows, which was awesome to have you know, to show him the loyalty, bring him on board and everything and get him. And then he got exposed all over the industry. So he got all sorts of jobs. He was shooting porn before he started working with me. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> oh, you know he knows how to get the good angles then, Brett. Yeah. So anyway, uh, where am I going with the cousin thing, the TV thing? We pitched our own thing. Oh, I had some right. there, man. You kept the rights to the show or something? No, not real. Well, yeah. I mean, I became, I would, I'm actually, I'm, I was an executive producer on a discovery channel TV show, which is pretty cool in my resume. My resume is hilarious. If you ever want to look at it, by the way, it's, it's just, it's so ridiculous. And like, I put like, like the first thing on my resume is successful with a pumpkin patch at nine years old. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Grew, Grew pumpkins and sold them at the side of the road, pumpkin patch entrepreneur, you know? Stuff like that. Think about that. Like, what do we what do we go on to say after you're like, you know, you put on your resume, sold used clothing for 25, 30 years. What kind of job are you going to go after with that resume? Well, you know, I get some I get some really interesting opportunities, you know, that call me. And I always say um, one of my quotes that I say is it's really nice to be asked to the dance, even if I'm not wanting to dance in that particular dance or that song. It's nice to be, it's nice to be asked, 
And I just had a TV sh- show call me uh, last week. I got all excited about it. It was a Japanese chance to work on another Japanese TV. I've done a bunch of Japanese things. I've done probably five of them now where they've hired me for a few days and they filmed my collection and gone out in the, going out to some mines with me and stuff. But, you know, I'm at a level where I demand a, a very high day rate. You know, I'm like a supermodel with the, the day rate here. And uh, you're getting me for free, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Good for you, man. Anyway. Um, but anyway, so they, oh, they didn't yeah, want to pay, they didn't wanna pay oh. my price. They didn't want to pay my price. So if you see this show come out, with uh, it's on NHK, and it's with somebody that's like a poser, that's because they didn't want to pay for the real deal. Okay, what's that show called? I don't know what they're going to call it, but it's like, what are they... You know, they, they were pretty cool. I talked to the guy. I, I offer like these TV people a whole a whole package. I'm like, look, I'll provide the location. I'll provide some collection pieces so you could see some extraordinary stuff. You know, because what's the chances of really finding something? I mean, you know, it's like I tell people go look at mines like all the time. Like, yeah, you should go look at mines and find tons of old clothing. <laughs> Give me yeah, a break. Well, obviously, it's the hardest so, thing in the world. So it's hard. the hardest thing in the world. It's super, super dangerous. People get trapped in mines. These are unstable fucking mines that haven't been active in like some of them hundred years. So definitely not recommended um, unless you're like insane. But a couple questions. So I have. Um, what? Can I tell you two quick, two quick little anecdotes about mines? Yes. And then I'll go to your questions. So first okay. of all. I call it first descents. I co- I coined this term first descents, okay. which is just like first descent onto you know Annapurna or K two or whatever. Yeah. First descents. I'm the first one in a mine. When I find a mine that I know, because there's ways to tell that I'm the first one in this place since the 1880s, 1870s. That's what I'm seeking. I'm seeking a first descent. I have a friend, a guy that trained me. When I first was starting doing this in the 2000s, my friend Stuart Burgess said to me, or I said to him, I said, Stuart, um, aren't you uh, afraid that, you know, you're going to get lost in a mine? Listen to this quote. Brit, I'm hoping to find a mine big enough that I could get lost in it. Because the bigger the mine, the more chances you're going to find some treasure, the more the miners were like living in there, so to speak. So when I go down in a mine and I'm, I could tell I'm the first one because it's like being on the moon, man. There's like a fucking cloud of dust. Like, so like, it's like the floor of the mines here, but then the actual like top of the dust is here. So you put your foot in and this billowing cloud comes and you get enveloped in like a fucking tube, man. It's crazy. So that's one second. Uh, probably uh, I've had a lot of crazy things. I've almost died several times, but one time I was repelling down a mine. Stuart was at the top. I'm going down in this mine. I'm about 200 feet down on my rope, getting chills again here on the thing. And all of a sudden I'm like, cause you know, when you're going down, you, you gotta be looking all around. You're looking up, you're looking everywhere. And all of a sudden I'm looking this way, fucking mountain lion, petrified mountain lion right next to me. I can't believe I lost these pictures of this. This was like 2007, 2008. Stuart probably has the pictures. I, I've asked him for them like five times over the years and he's given to me and then I've lost them again. Cause as I mentioned, I lose everything in like that $20,000 pair of jeans. Anyhow, petrified mountain lion, dude, like, like taxidermy style. Like it had, it had fallen down, must've been chasing a rabbit and landed on like a board going across. So it's haunches were like this and it's snarling and it was probably been there for 50 years, but it looked 
exactly like it did the day it died. It, it's no, so dry. No it's, it was in Nevada. Yeah. It was so dry. It just like desiccated the, the thing, but it is unbelievable. I thought to myself, if I could get this out of here, I could probably sell this for like 20 grand, you know? Crazy. <clears throat> Fuck. So that's fucking wild, man. Like I, I, I thought you were going to say like it was live and you can't stumbled in on its cave, but like that thing obviously Petrified. was in there and there's nothing in there to eat it like when it died. So it just fucking dries up crazy. Yeah. And at the bottom of that same mine, there was a hundred rattlesnakes, like literally. Cause I, I, I said to Stuart, I'm like, Holy shit. Holy shit. Cause our, our, our walkie talkies weren't working. So I had to yell and he couldn't really hear me. And so then I went down to the level. There was about a, there was a level about 15 feet below the mountain lion rattlesnakes everywhere, everywhere, but they were all dead except for two of them. There were two live ones, but I, I could hear them, but the other ones were all petrified too. And so I had to, I, I wanted to keep exploring the mine. So I had to kill these two rattlesnakes in order to keep going. And that's when I talk about how fucking psycho I've been doing this. Don't watch this mom. <laughs> that's amazing. So I've seen stories. So, okay. So first of all, early mines had the miners would explore with candles. They would put candles on their helmet, right? Stuck it right there on the helmet. It would be a literal fucking candle, right? So wax would drip on the jeans. And then they went to acetylene fucking lamps, right? So uh, carbide, yeah. Carbide, acetylene, yeah. Carbide, yeah. Which is like a gas reaction with water on your fucking head, basically like a bomb on your fucking helmet they would put. You probably see those in the mines too, those those lamps. Yeah, right? I found some. Th- those, I mean, like I said, man, finding anything in a mine is just about impossible. There was a lot of people, you know, from more of a historical perspective, I've been to the great pyramids. That's what that's what I was looking for earlier. I was trying to find you my great pyramids. Cause we were talking about that when I was at yeah. that, when I was doing the Indiana, when I was doing the, um, the ancient life. Pyro. But anyway, people don't realize this when the Pharaohs would, would get buried in like the, uh, the Valley of the Valley of the Kings and stuff like that. There was people in the freaking Hills watching as like the funeral procession would like leave Cairo and they would watch. And as soon as everybody stopped watching, they would dig up those freaking graves like instantly. So there's been tomb raiders from the beginning of time. And, you know, just because some mine was abandoned in the 1880s, that doesn't mean some dude in the fifties didn't go in there to, to just, you know, explore and steal stuff, you know, get stuff. Um, A friend of mine in Durango here, he knew a guy that was in Bayfield, Colorado that he said he went to the guy uh, when the guy was old, he had a, a sale and the guy moved from Nevada. And he said he had this one shed that was packed with Levi's all fucking 1800 Levi's just packed. The guy, we basically, it's like this. When you do mine exploring, you're not looking for Levi's. You're not looking for any artifact you find. It's so hard to find anything like anything that is, that hasn't been taken already or decayed or whatever, uh, or, or animals destroying it, mice or whatever you take whatever you find. And, and so, so this guy had a whole freaking shed full of Levi's from the 1800s and uh, nobody bought them because this was like in the, this was like in like 98 or something. And, uh, and, and then they just tore the shed down. And when the guy died, they tore the shed down, threw them all away, I guess. Fuck. But, but that guy, he was there when you could just go find jeans here, jeans there, you know? And everybody always says, well, why are there jeans in the mines? Well, mines are very wet. You know, a lot of times the water tables there, they'd have to figure out, go research the Sutro tunnel where they had to like put a tunnel under Virginia city, Nevada to get the water out. 
Yeah, so that was another one of my questions. Like, there's there's a reason. Like, well, why the fuck would someone take off their fucking pants in the mine? You're saying it's because it's wet and they needed to change their pants in the middle of the day? Or, like, why would they? Oh, no, because didn't they wear different pants down than the work pants so that they didn't bring, like, the dust out or some shit? You know, um, there's a lot of different reasons. You know, like if you go to like South Africa or some of those African mines, remember those blood diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, they would actually strip search people and look in there, do a cavity search. Because if somebody did find a diamond, you know, that could, I mean, this is a person making like a dollar a week or something. They yeah. find a million dollar diamond, you know, they'll put it up their ass, whatever. They'll, they'll swallow it. Who knows? You know, to get, to get to, you know, to get it. Um, so yeah, I think there was mines that would have changing rooms that would make people uh, take their clothes off. And I mean, I know this for a fact because I've been in changing rooms. I got some unbelievable changing room stories. I mean, the ultimate dream is to find a changing room. Actually, I can show you what one looks like real quick. Yeah, yeah so essentially the, the men would come down to work. They'd have to change in their work clothes, go back, change out, and go up the shaft and go home. And probably yeah, wore like... Yeah, because, I mean, you know, that was a way that they could keep people from... that. Okay, Here's, so I told you I'm already a kind of a historian about this stuff. Yeah. Another serendipitous thing. I bought a mine in a place called Goldfield, Nevada. When I told my mom I bought this mine claim, this was in like 2007. She said, Goldfield, Nevada. Goldfield, Nevada. She goes, that sounds really familiar. So about a week later, the mail comes. In the mail, a little note from my mom. This belonged to your great great grandfather that you're named after. No, great 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 grandfather, Luzerne Britton Eaton. I'm Peter Britton Eaton. Luzerne Britton was a gold miner in guess where? Goldfield, Nevada. And it was a little purse, a little uh, a little gold purse that was uh, like a leather purse thing that you would put your gold flakes in and stuff like that, a couple nuggets or whatever. Yeah. And it said Bank of Goldfield on it. Came from my great 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 grandfather, Luzerne Britton Eaton. Wow. Fucking unbelievable, right? Oh. So I had it for years. I kept a hundred dollar bill in it. You know, like there's a success thing that if you always have a hundred dollar bill on you, you just it's like subconscious. You feel rich, you know. And also in my business and your business, you got to have cash on you all the time because you never know when opportunity is going to show up. Yeah. And uh, you can't like you know go back or something. You need the money right on the spot. Nobody's going to take a fucking check. <laughs> Anyhow, so that 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 mine that goldfield place. Um, Oh, hell, I forgot what the hell question was. Oh, so as far as wetness and the mines, yeah, changing out in the changing room, but then the mines could be wet. There's also would be bring clothing down, like the stuff the guy found in Castle Dome. I think that was a pile of jeans that was pretty rough. I think they probably brought them down there to um, cut the denim up to use as like gasket material. So when they'd have like a, they drill a hole into a thing and then they get their candle or no, sorry, their dynamite they're going to put in there. To, to blast yeah they, they the dynamite might not fit properly so you have a little piece of denim you put around the dynamite to make it kind of snug in the hole because i felt because i've been to that mine i've explored those mines i went down there and met the guy that owns that place and i explored all around there um after those guys from canada had been there and after all their success i went down there and didn't find squat but anyhow <clears throat> um yeah. So okay. Yeah. I, I, I found I found gaskets. I found denim gasket material, like little pieces and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. That's crazy. So, um, you ever been trapped? You ever get like fucking stuck? You know, I've got. I'm gonna write a book someday. 
and I've got chapters on all these different things. Like any question you ask me, I'm going to have a hundred stories on, not one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been stuck a bunch in weird places. I've had, I mean, I mean, what, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about my truck getting stuck? Me personally being immobilized. I got stuck once going in a window of a place where it was like the window was high up and the guy said I could go out to his, his barn in the field, you know? So I was about a mile away from his house or quarter mile away from his house. And I go through this window and I went through like the only way to do it was like to pop up and then somehow shove my legs through. But then I, I couldn't reach the bottom of the floor on the other way. And so I was like stuck like in the window with my back stretched like terribly for like 10 minutes, like until I figured out a way to turn around and wiggle out of it. It's horrible. I I mean, I've been stuck. Yeah, I've been stuck. I mean, like I got so many stories about every one of these topics that it's hard to like. Yeah, no, remember. So, okay. So how about this then? You recently posted on your Instagram, Indiana jeans, everybody go follow, um, about this, like original. Original what? Indiana jeans. Sorry, the original Indiana jeans. Somebody stole, somebody stole Indiana jeans when Instagram first came out. So I'm original Indiana jeans. Okay, and you did a you did like a a five or six part mini series about finding a pair of jeans in the entranceway to a mine that you said you've been trying to come to. It's been covered in snow for a certain amount of time. You want to give us like the synopsis of this story, um, and like I don't know your account of it. Yeah, that's cool. Can, can we wrap it up in like the next 10 minutes? You think? Yeah, yeah this I... is it. Well, then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. All right. So, you know, this, this, the Goldfield thing, I alluded to Goldfield. That will take, I could write a whole book on the Goldfield thing. Okay. This other story that you're asking me about, I will write, you know, a few chapters on. It's not a whole book worth of stuff, but it's pretty unbelievable. I'm checking in a hotel around 2001. The, the lady says, are you here for business or pleasure? I say, both. I love what I do. She says, oh, what do you do? I say, oh, I look for old clothing, old Levi's and stuff. She says, oh, my God, my grandfather's a prospector, and he's got a bunch of jeans in a safe deposit box that he found frozen in a mine. I said, no way. Can I get his number? She goes, yeah, I'll give you his number, but he's really cantankerous. He doesn't like people calling him. I call the guy the next day. He basically says, don't call me anymore. I got some jeans. I got him appraised $50,000. Don't call me anymore. They were frozen in a mine. Uh, <clears throat> I found this. Basically, he tells me this tale that <clears throat> he'd been at a thrift store in the 60s, found like a tattered ledger where this miner in the 1890s had written about the best mine he ever found. And it was way up in the hills. So this guy in the 1990s started researching where it could be and bought the rights to this mine. And he started going up there, but it was always frozen over. It was over Breckenridge, Colorado at 14,000 feet of elevation, always frozen. And so he started going up there with pack mules with freaking, because he wanted gold. You know, he was, he was reading this journal that this guy had found all this gold. The problem was in the journal, the guy detailed that it was so difficult to get up there to get the gold because every time he'd, he'd work for three months in the summer and then it would be frozen over again and he'd have to like dig it out again uh, every year and it just was too difficult to get the gold out. Yeah. But now in, in the 1998, the gold is worth so much more than it ever was worth back then, right? So it would be worth it to go up there. So he brought pack mules up and freaking um, uh, propane tanks and like uh, like a weed blower thing to burn out the mine. And eventually he got in there and he could see frozen in the ice. Once he got into the portal of the mine, 
frozen in because you mentioned shafts earlier. And I have to say, a mine shaft means a vertical shaft. An adit is a horizontal opening, basically, with a portal on the end. And so this was a horizontal one. And <clears throat> there's even tracks and stuff coming out. So essentially, over like 20 years, I've pieced this whole story together. But in 2001, the guy basically tells me never to call him again. I call him the next year, same thing, hangs up on me. I call him for five or six years, then I lose his number. Um, I find his number again around 2017, call him, and uh, he says, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe you're still after what I've got. He goes, yeah, you know what? I'm getting older now. I guess I'd show you this stuff. Okay. And um, so I say, I'll come in. A, I, I make a date to visit him a week later. Um, I drive six hours to where he lives. And I call when I get there. I never call before I leave. This is another little tip here. Um, it's like I used to sell like these water filters and, and we would try to recruit people to be in our freaking sales force. And there was a great line. Um, those you pick up, show up. You know I, mean? I mean, if I go to your house to pick you up, you're going to show up to the meeting because I'm making sure you're going to be at the meeting. Right. And it's kind of like that with vintage clothing. If you call somebody before you go see them, they could say, don't come. If you just show up at their house, you're already there. They can't tell you not to come. <laughs> so, so that was, that's my theory. So anyway, so I get to this guy's town and I, uh, and I call when I get to the town and the daughter says, Oh my God, George had a stroke a couple days ago and he almost died. He's out of the hospital, but he's basically a vegetable. She goes, Oh my God, it's so sad. I go, Oh my God, I just drove six hours. Can I at least come and you know give my condolences or meet the guy? I never actually met the guy after 18 years of pursuing the guy. So. I go over there. I meet the daughter. She's super nice. I go in the, the guy, George, the old miner is, is literally like practically comatose, just sitting there. And his son is spoon feeding him vegetables. Okay. Swear to God on the couch. And I'm, and, and nobody knows where the clothes are, you know, like the clothes that he was going to show me, nobody knows. Supposedly he got him out of the safe deposit box. I don't know. And then this crazy, crazy thing happens and da, 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 where, it's a long story, but ultimately, after me and the daughter search around for like five hours, we can't find him anywhere. I leave. As I'm going out of the driveway, she waves. She goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I found him. And sure enough, she shows me this collection of clothing that, to this day, is the greatest looking stuff I've ever seen in my life. Like, mind-blowing, amazing 1880s group of stuff. And it was literally frozen in the ice. So it's in excellent wearable condition. One jacket alone, I got offered 50 grand. A guy was at my house with $50,000 and I didn't sell it. Still have it. Damn. So, but she's like, well, what do you want to pay for it? And I'm like, I can't buy it. He never said he wanted to sell it. He said he would just show it to me if I buy it. And then the guy wakes up out of the coma, he's going to want to kill me. Right. Because you know, so I, I can't buy it. I go, this stuff's amazing. Anyway, ultimately, the guy woke out, up out of the coma. I bought the stuff. A year later or so, he died and left me like in the will with the treasure map of where the mine is so I can go find more stuff. And we've been filming a Swedish documentary with Victor Friedback, uh, um, uh, Emilio Di Stefano is the producer, and they're... Um, it's like Yota Boy Gothenburg Films, I think is what they're called. There's a whole documentary with this guy, Victor Friedback, who's a collector in Sweden. And we've gone up there now a few times with them, but it's been frozen over every time. And we brought the grandson with us, who's 
this crazy kid and he accidentally smoked the granddad's ashes right before we were going to leave the ashes of George Troop up on the hillside and stuff. The, the grand, the kid had this weed in one pocket and his granddad in the other, and he packed his pipe and actually stuck. We got all this on film. It's an amazing movie. You got to see the movie when it comes out. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good place to end. We'll leave everybody wanting to watch this film of this kid smoking his granddad's ashes. Also you finding some fucking gems. Um, Everybody's got to go follow the original Indiana Jeans. I want to say, baby. I want to say, coming on the show. Uh, like I said, I've known you since early days of me being involved in this in this game, and you're one of the true OGs. You're like one of the original Rose Bowl like fathers. We call them of like you, Larry, Mike, Man, Pearl. Uh, you said you said um, uh, Junkyard Jeans. Like there's like a crew yeah. of people that were there like when we started. You know. And we look yeah, at but it's, it's so funny. It's so funny because all those other guys were the OGs for me, you know, like, like, it's funny. Like you think I'm a father. They're like the grandfathers then. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, and, you know, to be honest, if you go out there now, you're like a father to these young guys, probably, you know, Yeah, it is like that. It's wild. Yeah. It's crazy. So, all right, man, that was really fun. Uh, any last, any, anybody you want to shout out any last things you want to say on the show? Are you thinking? Oh, me? Yeah, no, I'm saying, is there any like last words you have for the oh, people? I thought you said anybody, like you're asking for other people. No, no, um, like you. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, let me just do this then. Hang on. So my ledger is here. Let's see if I can get one. Ah, ah, that's so freaking funny. I have all these ledgers. I got like 20 of these ledgers over here. And I put quotes in the beginning of them. Like as I go through the year, I write quotes down and stuff like that. That's so funny. Here, here is um, name ideas for TV shows. When I was doing TV show ideas, uh, desolation, treasure, backroads, riches, high plains, a uh, boomtown, the boomtown scroungers or wild west scroungers. But here's a good quote. This is a, a lady says to me. Okay. Oh no, this is a guy named Clint that I knew in Farmington. So I wrote this down after being with this guy for a couple hours. He says, well, I'm not sure whose day is being made here, yours or mine. And I said, well, Clint, that's the great thing about when I show up, it makes everyone's day. (laughs) Perfect, Brett. We'll end it there. Thank you, sir. Peace later. Good stuff. Well, everyone, hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'm going to be coming back with lots more great episodes. Lots more OGs in the game are going to be on the show. If you have recommendations of who you want to see on the show, drop them below. Already got a good lineup ready for you guys. Uh, Coming into 2022, Happy New Year, everyone. It's crazy. Again, if you want to shop, FSNFrankVintage.com. Go use code VTG and stuff. Get yourself 25% off. Go sign up for BidStitch. Um, check out FrankieCollective.com. If you want to support this show, you know you can always check out my Patreon link down below. And at the very least, if you learned something, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. It means a lot. Appreciate you all. See you guys on the next one.